Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about 2 Kings 22 and 23. Under the rule of King Josiah, the Book of the Law is rediscovered in the temple. As it is read, Josiah tears his robes in repentance and leads the people to renew their covenant before God. Let's hear today's message. The passage you just heard read is one of my favorite in the Old Testament. And yet, I want to begin by asking for your help, because even though I'm really enthusiastic about this passage, I I found in the first service, I was really having trouble kind of revving my engines as I preach, if you will. Tom, you've probably experienced that from time to time. It might be a little too much turkey on Thursday that is still getting out of my system. I It might be lament and mourning from yesterday's game. Could be that. I don't don't know. It might be that it's a little cold in here. I think the boiler's given us some trouble, so I hope you kept your coat on. I don't know what it is, but this is a powerful passage that I don't feel like I gave justice to in the first service, so I, I really want you to pray and give attention this morning, and let's hope that the Spirit brings the, the power of God's Word into our midst um, as we preach. It's the perfect passage for this Sunday, even though those who created the schedule probably didn't think about it in this way. You might be aware that this Thanksgiving weekend is not the first Sunday of Advent, as it seems to always be. I don't know if you're aware of this. For those of us who kind of plan the church calendar frequently, it seems like the first Sunday of Advent falls on Thanksgiving weekend, and we find ourselves rushed and jarred. All of a sudden, our focus goes from this kind of national holiday of gratitude to the Advent season, and we haven't had much time to prepare. But this year, we do. The first Sunday of Advent is next Sunday. And so I want to take some time this morning to to invite us to prepare ourselves for that and to think about how we might step into that season. Most of us are likely aware that Advent is that time of preparation to celebrate Jesus' coming. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which simply means coming, and it's the first four Sundays prior to Christmas. And so we we recognize Jesus' first coming, of course, and celebrate the, the, the narrative of his birth, but we also historically anticipate and seek to prepare our spirit uh, to welcome Jesus in his second coming. And I think that uh, part of the, the season has been lost somewhat in modern times. And it's that part I, I, I want to lean into a little bit this morning. Because I don't know about you, my, my spirit is stirred a little bit differently this year than it has been in past years as I look at world events. And I wonder, Jesus, are we getting close? Are you coming soon? I don't know. I, I, you probably don't watch or listen to preachers like I do. 
Like, I, I don't even know if you listen to me, but, but you, you might, if, you, if you listen to other preachers, you might have noticed there are a handful of preachers who are saying, hey, church, pay attention, because the signs of the times are suggesting that we might be close. And I don't know if they're right, I don't know if they're wrong, but I do know some things that I see that make me go, hmm, like, the more and more I, I recognize how fast our culture is changing and the place of technology within it, especially when I compare our days to kind of the days we're remembering as we go through the Old Testament. You've, you've recognized that as we go from account to account, often we're skipping over centuries, hundreds of years, and yet the experience of life from one group of people to the next isn't really all that changed through most of human history. War has largely been fought in the same ways. Food has been produced in the same ways. People have learned in the same ways until recently. Technology seems to be changing everything really rapidly. I mean, I thought about how much does this phone guide our lives today, and yet I didn't have my first phone, and it wasn't anything like this one, until after I graduated college. I'm not that old right? I turned 48 here in a couple of weeks, so it's only been 20 years that technology like this has radically changed the way in which we live. And then you read the paper today and read about artificial intelligence and all, all of the promise that holds, but also all of the danger, and you go, Lord, what is this going to mean? And is this signaling something? You look at you look at the climate, right? All of the natural disasters and things that are happening, climate change and all of that, and, and remember Jesus' words about famines and earthquakes and all of that, where he said, hey, don't get too upset, but do recognize these are birth pangs. These are supposed to signal to you. The last one, of course, for me is the war that's happening in Israel right now. I don't claim to understand the, all the spiritual realities of what's going on there, but I think it can't be denied that God's spiritual fingerprints are with on, with, uh, upon Israel. And these events that are happening make me go, hmm, Lord, what are you doing? Anyone else like that? Okay, I'll preach to myself. That's, that's fine. Okay, there's a couple, there's a, there's a couple more. Well, what a perfect time to lean into Advent. Because this is the time where we're supposed to remember Jesus' promise. Not only that he would come the first time, but that he's going to come again. I want you to recognize that this year, the first four Sundays prior to Christmas, means that the last Sunday happens on Christmas Eve. And so as you're thinking through your family schedule and worship, I, I hope you will note that we're going to worship uh, just once on, in the morning of December 24th as one whole church family, 10 o'clock. That will be the fourth Sunday of Advent. And then we'll hold our traditional Christmas Eve services in the evening. So what am I saying? I, I'm hoping you'll come to church twice that day, uh, that we'll be able to share that time uh, together. But what does it mean to to expect, to, to keep watch. You know, Jesus, some, some of you might be hearing me talk about these things and, and think, oh my goodness, I got one of those pastors, huh? The one that's going to talk about end time stuff. No, but Jesus did say, Matthew 24, hey church, 
Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us to watch? And, And what should be the disposition of our life, of our faith, of our worship, as we expect Jesus to come again? Because he did say he's going to come. I think... Josiah and all that happened in his day can help us recognize what it should look like for us in our day to anticipate the king's return. This Sunday, I didn't note it at the outset, this Sunday in the liturgical year is called Christ the King Sunday. It's where we recognize that Jesus is king and Josiah points like a shadow to the coming of Jesus the good and perfect king. It was in the midst of dark, dark, troubling times that Josiah comes to the throne. And because of his faithfulness, if only for a moment, God's people experienced a moment of light and blessing. So it might be in our time if we faithfully seek God like Josiah did. And so I hope you have uh, the scripture open to uh, 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to look at not only some verses that have already been read, but some of the verses we skipped over I think are important. So turn there, I'd encourage you. And uh, let me pause and pray one more time again that God's word comes in power uh, during these moments. Lord, uh, I don't always know how or what makes for a faithful sermon. It has to do with the preaching. It has to do with the listening. certainly has to do with all of our response after we have heard and leave this place. Certainly, Lord, we know that while we have a part to play, it is you, Holy Spirit, that works amongst us. And so I do pray that you would enliven these words we've heard read, that you would help us to understand them, that you would press them on our heart, And that we would leave as people who haven't just heard the word, but who have been changed by it. That you, Jesus, would be exalted in our life as king in greater ways than when first we came. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, not to dismiss all that I'm seeing in the world, but I do think it's important. Every time you see evidence of darkness or trouble in the world and go, might the end be near? It's important to recognize there have been times before (laughs) that have been dark and troubling. In fact, I wonder if uh, it isn't true that every generation sees something so troubling that they think, oh Lord, are you near? Certainly, that was the, the description of the day in which uh, Josiah was born. If you look at the context of his life, his grandfather, a king named Manasseh, ruled in Judah for 55 years. And while we have heard that most of the kings were evil and strayed from the Lord, nobody was worse than Manasseh. In fact, I want you to see, if you flip back one chapter to 2 Kings chapter 21, you can see a a short description of uh, the nation of Judah under his rule. I also put it up here on the screen in front of you. 
Listen to this. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, not in high places out in the remote countryside, in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, that is the inner court and the outer court for the Gentiles, he built altars to all the starry hosts. And he sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And just let that sink in a little bit. I mean, all as we've traveled through the Old Testament, we hear about kings turning away from the Lord and worshiping Baal and Asherah and other pagan gods. They, they, would, they, they would erect places of worship in other places, but Manasseh does it right in the temple. I mean, he pushes aside the, the candlesticks and the, and the Ark of the Covenant. He just tra- it tears the curtain down, erects some other altar. In the worship of Baal and Asherah, he gives himself and leads the people to give themselves to child sacrifice, including his own children. He invites mediums and spiritists. I mean, just picture it in your mind's eye. Consider how terrible it is. And then multiply that because it's probably much, much worse. These were dark days. And Manasseh's rule was 55 years, a long time. He, he was followed by his son, a man named Amon, and Amon died prematurely. He only ruled two years, but the scripture said he ruled in the same way as his father did. So for 57 years, almost six decades, this is kind of the national experience or identity of Judah. It was really dark. Then, because Amon died prematurely, his son Josiah, at eight years old, comes to the throne. Remember I told you, prophet, priest, and king all through the Old Testament are the offices that God uses to mediate relationship with his people, and all of them point to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Josiah should point us to Jesus on Christ the King Sunday. This king that was born as a baby, as a young child, and would bring a good and perfect rule into the world. Josiah is born, and for a moment, he brings light into darkness. I want to recount for you Josiah's life, because while the story of an eight-year-old king is kind of a fun one to think about it, It, to me, strikes me as something more of a nursery rhyme than something that can actually help us. Because who actually believes an eight-year-old ruled with any sort of power? And he didn't. There there are two accounts, maybe you're aware, two accounts in the Scripture of God's people from the time of King David to the exile. One is in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. The other is in the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. They lift up many of the same people and the same accounts, but, but have a different recollection or a different emphasis. And if we go to 2 Chronicles, we will be able to learn a little bit more about Josiah's life, and I think in a more helpful way. You can turn there if you want, or you could just make a note 
that everything I'm about to share with you comes from 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35. You can look at it later. I went there asking the question, how does, how does one bring such faithfulness and, and, and faith to Judah in the midst of such darkness? How did this happen? Like, how did Josiah develop? And 2 Chronicles gives you some clues. So first, it does affirm, just as 2 Kings does, that Josiah comes to the throne at eight years old, and both suggest, obviously, he does not rule by himself as an eight-year-old boy, but he must have had faithful, godly counselors in his life that pointed him uh, to Yahweh, the most important of whom might have been his mother, Jedidah. Do you see her name listed in 2 Kings? She's there again in 2 Chronicles. A woman's name is not always listed, but here is Jedidah because she has invested in her son. Even though her husband, the king, Amon, was evil, she was faithful in telling the stories, in praying for her son, in nurturing his faith. I think those of us who are trying to raise children or who have grandchildren, I think all of us as a church, since we take vows, anytime a baby is brought up here and, and baptized, all of us should take note of this passage and, and recognize that in, in dark times when it seems hard to lift up the faith, especially in the life of a young person who's distracted by so many other things, boy, God uses that. He did it here through Jedidah. That at a time when you wouldn't expect it, Josiah's faith is nurtured from a young age. So much so that a few years later, 2 Chronicles says, in the eighth year of his reign, so do the math, eight, eighth year of reign, 16, right? When he's 16 years old, the scripture said, he began to seek the God of his father, David, is the way 2 Chronicles puts it, or 2 Kings says, not turning aside to the right or to the left. That's to say, in his teenage years, Josiah went, hmm, I think I need to make the faith of my mother my own. And he made a decision, and he began to walk a certain direction. That's important, don't you think? Because it is in those years that we often make those decisions. Maybe it was true for you, it certainly is true. In the first service, we had a whole bunch of kids sitting right up here in their teenage years who had made decisions to follow Jesus. And I'm so encouraged by what God's doing in our midst through our partnership with Young Life and in our, in our youth ministry. If you're not noticing that, see it and thank God for it. The, the word continues in the 12th year of Josiah's reign. So that's now he's 20 years old. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, and idols. Again, don't miss what this might have felt like. A 20-year-old man, yes, I know he's king, but this took courage, and it took faith. For 60 years, the people have known worship in a certain way. They expected their rituals and the, their holidays. And Josiah comes in and goes, not on my watch. And he begins to tear things down. 
How much does that point to some decisions that need to be made in our young adult years? When we're in college or our first job or going to the military and everyone's going this direction and we hear the call of Jesus go, no, 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 you know that's not the way. I've got kids in that stage right now, right? I'm praying for them that they would turn in the way they know they should go. Josiah did. And so we give thanks. Finally, we come to this scene. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he's 26 years old. He sets out to repair the temple. And again, we can only imagine the ruin that it has become. Graffiti on the walls, stones pushed over, walls fallen down, so much so that he has to employ the craftsmen that are described in this text. It was in the midst of this work that something mysterious and glorious and profound happened. Again, allow your imagination to race. That the workers are working and they're pulling rubble aside and then all of a sudden somebody finds this book. And the worker takes the book to the priest, Hilkiah, and Hilkiah looks at the book and goes, huh. And Hilkiah takes the book to Shaphan, the secretary, and Shaphan goes, huh, I think. And then they together take the book to Josiah and all of them recognize, they think what this is. The book of the law. What is, what is the book of the law? Think? It could be the Pentateuch, the first five books of you know, the Torah there at the beginning. But I don't think so. I caught myself as I was thinking through the scene, thinking in a way that I don't think was right. When I last thought about Josiah, the way I thought about this scene was that that God's law and God's word had been totally forgotten within Judah. No more copies, no more memory. But, but that can't be, can it? I mean, if in reading this thing, Hilkiah and Shaphan and Josiah recognize some aspect of what it is, then there must be some memory and probably likely copies of God's word, the book of the law around. And yet, when they discover this, they react profoundly. What I think they discover is the actual book of Deuteronomy, written in Moses' own hand. Let me show you why, just in case you're curious. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 and 26 say this. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. And that word against is interesting because he'll go on and say, because I know you're going to turn away from me. <laughs> and so this will serve as a, as a witness against you. Like, do you get, get it? The, the book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses and then set next to the Ark of the Covenant in a symbolic way, in the center of God's people. Joshua speaks of this in the beginning of his book, Joshua 1.8. He calls out to the people as they're about to go into the promised land, and he says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. 
meditate on it day and night so that you'll know everything written in it because then you'll be prosperous and successful. Did that happen? Come on, we're, we're about to wrap up the Old Testament. Did that happen? No. No, they had forgotten and they lost the book of the law, probably first in their mind and their heart, and then literally it was lost until it was discovered in Josiah's day. Now the period of time from the end of Moses' life to Josiah's day is about 600 years. And so they discover this 600-year-old book. And they begin to read it again. And its presence has a profound effect on Josiah. Again, not because he hasn't heard these words before. He probably has. But because he recognizes how far his nation has strayed. I think Jason and I were talking about this. And he made the point it's, it's kind of like probably going to see the Declaration of Independence. Have you been to Washington, seen it in physical form, right? It's not like we don't all have copies. You could pull it up on the internet and see the words. But when you're there, standing in front of that document, something hits you. And you go, oh, wait, there was a dream that was this nation. And we can appreciate many things about our country, and we can see how we've strayed. Similarly, there's a profound reaction to this book. And look, verse 11, this is one where we skipped over. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. It's a symbolic gesture for grief and lament and repentance and agony. That's Josiah's response. He knew what this book was. Hilkiah knew it. Shaphan knew it. And he was about to put it in front of all the people. But he did one more thing first, and I want to show you, not because it's the point of the sermon, but because I think it's a passage you just got to see and let it, file it away in the back of your head. So he wants to confirm, what is this book? And so they, in verse 14, together, Hilkiah the priest, uh, Hiakim, Achor, and Sh- and Shaphan and Asiah, they went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah. Again, it's not the point of the sermon, but I don't want to scoot over that, especially in a time where still the, the place of women in the life of the church and God's people is questioned. Do you notice That when there needs to be confirmation that this is indeed God's word, they don't go to the prophet Jeremiah, who was serving in the days of uh, Josiah. They go to this mysterious woman, the prophetess Huldah. And she's the one that says, yes, this is the word of the Lord. I just file that away as we have conversations about a woman's place in, in the church and leadership, because I think God has constantly used faithful women in the story, and you ought to note that one. All right. What was it like, do you think? Again, use your imagination here. What was it like 
to find a 600-year-old book. In my, in my research and thinking, I stumbled across this thing that I think is kind of interesting. I hope you will, too. Uh, I stumbled across something called the Voynich Manuscript. Here's a picture of it. It's a, it's a, a document that's carbon dated to the 1400s. It was discovered in 1912 by a guy named Wilfred Voynich, who was an antique book dealer, uh, and he purchased it in Italy. So it's about 600 years old. And after he discovered it, it was put in front of all sorts of scholars and cryptographers and even some people who were code breakers during World War II. And you know what? Nobody can read this. Nobody knows what it, what it says. Not the case with God's word that was recovered in Josiah's day. They find this 600-year-old book, and thankfully they know exactly what it is. Because of the faithfulness of God's spirit and God's people who have copied God's word throughout the generations, we also can know with confidence God's word. You know, sometimes we're living in a day where people go, ah, you ever played the telephone game? If you have, you know you can't trust this word that's been passed down from one person to the next. It's a statement made out of ignorance. Do you know that we have more than 25,000 copies, full or partial, of the New Testament from the 4th century or before? Compare that to other ancient documents like Caesar's Gaelic Wars. We have 10 copies of that. 10 versus 25,000. Of those 25,000, more than 5,000 of, of them are complete copies. And if you compare those to one another, they are in agreement 99.5% of the time. That is to say, though we may not have the original, we can have great confidence that we know what God's word is and what God's word says. At the same time, who would deny that in our day, much like Josiah's day, even though there is a memory of God's word and there may be copies of God's word, the power of God's word has been lost in many of our lives and in our households. I mean, literally, how many Bibles sit on the shelves in American homes and don't get opened for years? It's not unlike this book of the law that was recovered from the temple. And it's why I think this, this story of Josiah's life is the perfect one to lead us into Advent. For it was the recovery of God's word and its elevation among the people that led to the renewal of the covenant. And Advent could be that for us as well, if we'll allow it to be. Advent is a great time to bring God's word back into a central place in our homes once again. If for no other reason, because so many people produce resources, right? I, I, I suppose it's a vocational blessing, but do you guys get these Advent devotionals in the mail like I do? I just get all of these things. No, you don't. Okay. Well, they're online too, right? 
If you go to Bible Gateway, if you go to Right Now Media, if you, go to, if you Google Advent devotionals, there are hundreds and thousands of faithful people who, who order God's Word in such a way as to help us come into Advent. I found this book. This lady has taken the nativity story from the Scripture and put it into novelized form. So that there's 20, I think 25 or 26 chapters, just a couple of pages long, that you could read with your grandchildren or children. You could get on FaceTime with them every night, read them the story of the nativity. But here's what I want to invite us to do as a community. We've got a week, right? Advent didn't start this weekend. We've got a week to ask the Lord, how would you have us recover and lift up your word in our midst? I'd love for you to explore it. Think about it. Again, go online. See if you've got resources. And then share those things. If you're with us on Facebook, that's the great spot. If you share them there, we can collaborate. And then on Friday of next week in the newsletter, we'll consolidate all those ideas and hold them out. Because different resources will be more helpful for different people. Some need a family-oriented resource. Some want a marriage resource. Some want something you just use in your private devotions. Whatever it is, let's lift up God's word together. And then live by it. For it's not enough to symbolically read God's word. Right? We've got to be called to live it out. That's what Josiah did. Let's reread that last verse as I'm wrapping up. 23.3. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Make no mistake, Josiah's covenant was not with a book. It was with God behind the book. Our goal is not to, to take up the word in order to check off a list during the Christmas season. No, it's to encounter the one who came as a child for our salvation and share life with him. And it's to prepare ourselves for his promised return. So let's do that. Let's wait by putting God's word central in our homes, and in our church again. And let's expect him to return. For Jesus did promise to come again one day. Let's pray together. Lord, you have told us, keep watch. You said like a, like a homeowner who left his servants in charge of the home he promised that he would return, but that we wouldn't know when. So instead of guessing, you call us to be faithful, and you call us to watch. Lord, forgive us if we've allowed your word uh, to fall into the disrepair of our lives. Would you help us to pick up your word again, especially in, in the season of Advent? Guide this time that we will share as families and as a church family, that you, Jesus, would uh, be recovered in our midst and that you would be
the one upon whom we wait. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.